0: do take comfort in the hope of the gospel that God himself has given us, that he's given us the Savior Jesus Christ to whom we can confess our sins and find forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's our hope as we worship him this morning. Let us now open God's word that he would teach us. Our scripture reading will come from two places. First, the letter to the Philippians, As we continue our series in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, the text that we'll be focusing on is in verse 5, but we'll read the whole chapter to hear that again in context. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So far from Philippians 4, let's also turn briefly to the letter of James. It's right after Hebrews. James chapter 3. This is in connection again with verse 5 of Philippians 4, which said, Let your reasonableness be known to all men. And so we read a a few verses from James on this same point in James 3, verse 13, and we'll read through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So far, the word of God. Giving our attention is Philippians 4 verse 5, which says, Let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're coming now to the second of the three or four final one-line exhortations that Paul gives to the Philippians. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, as we do this, we want to slow down because Paul is giving these one by one, each standing on its own, because he wants us to stop and reflect on each one and consider each one for our lives. And and just like 2 weeks ago our goal here is to understand primarily two things. First, why is this so important to Paul that he reserves this for his one of his final words to the Philippians? Why does this matter so much for him? And secondly, what does this exhortation mean and look like for us here in Alora? How should we be putting this into practice if Paul were to come and visit us? What would he be wanting to see among us by this exhortation? So let's start with the first question. Why is this so important? Why does Paul think it's so important that the Philippian church be known for its reasonableness to everyone? This is the same question we asked a couple weeks ago when we looked at Paul's command to rejoice And then we saw that the the command to rejoice is actually written all over the letter to the Philippians. And we could see how important it was throughout this letter for the Philippian church to be a rejoicing church. Paul calls them to that again and again, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and, And we saw the reasons for that. Rejoicing in the Lord would preserve them in their faith. It would keep their eyes fixed on Christ and it would also serve to show the, the surpassing worth of Christ as they rejoiced in him even in the midst of, of trials and persecutions. And so now we want to ask the same question of verse 5. Why is, re, or why is reasonableness so important to Paul? Why is this on Paul's mind and why do the Philippians need to hear it? There's no evidence at all that they were an unreasonable church or that they were known for, for being unreasonable. In fact, they're They're one of the most generous churches uh, that you find in all of Scripture. You want to talk about an unreasonable church, you might look at Corinth um, or or a place like that. Now, the word that's translated reasonableness could also be translated gentleness. In fact, that's how most translations uh, translate it. They say uh, gentle, And, and even most occurrences of this same word in the ESV, it's still more often than not translated as gentle. So most translations say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. And that's just as good a translation as as reasonableness. Now, as we read that, we need to be careful not to tune out. And that's true especially of the men among us. Let's be honest, gentleness is probably not one of the most highly coveted qualities among us men. Not too many men want to be well known, first of all, for their gentleness. We would, rather be, we would rather be known for our strength or our intelligence or our courage or something more manly than gentleness. Not too many people in our day, and least of all men, are making a point of learning to be gentle. It's just not on the top of the list of the things that we value. And if you doubt me, look at the hockey games we watch or even the politicians we vote for. Uh, gentleness is not our highest uh, virtue. But that's exactly what Paul is commanding the Philippian church to pursue a spirit of gentleness. And that should, especially for us men, at least make us rethink our, our, gut va- our gut feelings about the value of gentleness as something that's worth striving for. And maybe it also means we need to reassess our understanding of, of what gentleness actually means in Scripture and, and what lies behind that gentleness. To back that up, let me just cite a number of, of texts. First of all, Matthew 5, verse 5, The Lord Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, he uses a different word there than, than the one that's found here, but, but it's a similar concept. Gentleness and, and meekness are obviously closely related. Or 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, where Paul says an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And there the word gentle is the same word that's used here in Philippians. So if, if you thought that gentleness is not a good leadership quality, you will need to rethink that because Paul says it's an absolute requirement for leadership in the church. Or James 3, we read this verse, uh, where he says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, same word there, as well as open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is true biblical wisdom. So once again, if we're thinking of gentleness as sort of synonymous with weakness, uh, which many people do think, then, then we're not in good company here. We're up against uh, Paul, we're up against the Lord Jesus, and we're up against uh, James. James says gentleness is a mark of wisdom. It's also there in uh, verse 13 where he asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct let him show his works, in the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom has a certain meekness about it. Uh, One more verse, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says there, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ himself. So, So not only is gentleness a requirement for leadership in the church and a mark of wisdom, it's also something that the Lord Jesus himself the king of the universe, was distinctly known for during his time on earth. So we men and, and any others who, who might think of gentleness as sort of a, a sign of weakness in a person's character, and, and if we react against gentleness as something that's sort of soft and, and effeminate, we need to reevaluate that in light of scripture. Now, it's true there, there is a kind of gentleness that can be uh, weak and, and effeminate, and that's not healthy in church leadership. But the problem there is not the gentleness itself, but the lack of courage or the lack of conviction that, that causes a person to be that kind of, of gentle. We are called to be courageous. We are called to be people of conviction. And that's true especially of men in leadership But according to Paul, the Lord Jesus, and James, another essential mark of wisdom in leadership and true manliness is gentleness. It's why they used to call men gentlemen. You don't hear that as often. It's almost an old-fashioned term today. But it's not a contradiction for a man to be gentle. If our gut reaction is to dismiss gentleness as, as weakness, we're in very poor company And so if that is our instinct, then we want to think about what gentleness really means in Scripture. As I mentioned, the word can mean either gentleness or reasonableness. It goes both ways. And one of the most common uses of this word outside of Scripture is where it referred to kings or governors who knew how to enforce the law thoughtfully or with wisdom. So not just a applying the strict letter of the law to every situation, but taking into account the individual circumstances and using wisdom in their application of the law. It's a very common use of that word outside of Scripture. That's why the ESV goes with the translation reasonableness. It very much fits. You get the same sense in 1 Peter 2 verse 18 where, Peter writes, servants, be be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, same word there, but also to the unjust. So gentleness there is the opposite of injustice. Uh, And so reasonableness can be a very good translation. It's the opposite of injustice and and harshness and hostility and abrasiveness. And, And so Paul says, let your gentleness or reasonableness, be known to everyone. You can hopefully see the connection that that command has with the one that came right before, which is rejoice in the Lord always. A joyful Christian is going to be a Christian who will also be gentle and reasonable, especially with unbelievers and with those who who disagree with him or her. True, deep, joy in the Lord uh, that's rooted in our hope in Christ, it enables us to be gentle and reasonable and not to become hostile or abrasive. It's the knowledge of who we are in Christ uh, that causes us not just to rejoice, but that also gives us the strength and the courage to be gentle with those who disagree with us. An abrasive Christian is a Christian who's in the first place, forgotten his or her joy. A harsh Christian who gets angry quickly and and who reacts uncharitably is a Christian who's lost sight of Christ. Uh, Consider all that that Christ has done for us, even while we were his enemies. If we know that, if that's sunk into our hearts, then we're going to be abundantly generous and charitable towards others, because we know that that's how Christ is all the time, towards us. It's when we lose our joy then that we become harsh, abrasive, and uncharitable, and unreasonable towards towards others. It's very easy to spend our time crossing everyone else's T's and dotting everyone else's I's and, and lashing out at those who disagree with us while failing to rejoice in the very truth that we claim to be defending. It happens very easily for Christians. That's certainly one of the reasons why Paul makes this one of his final commands to the church in Philippi. And so rejoicing Christians will be reasonable Christians. It's the knowledge of the surpassing worth of Christ that enables us to rejoice even in in sorrow and persecution. We saw that two weeks ago, and that also then enables us to be gentle and reasonable uh, towards others. When a Christian knows that his hope is in the resurrected Lord who who will certainly return, his heart will be so full of joy that he doesn't need to criticize or lash out. He can reason with those who, who don't believe or who disagree, and he can do so with a heart that's still full of joy and full of love. And so Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We need to hear this exhortation just as much as the Philippian church did then. Our hope as a church is that we would bring honor to the name of Christ among one another as well as out in the world. And if we're going to do that, one of the first things we will need to learn is the gentleness, the meekness of Christ. It's easy enough to be right. Uh, and we are. We are right when it comes to our values, our Christian values, when it comes to our understanding of God, which is based in Scripture. We are right, and we can know that we're right about those things. And, and so did Christ, his entire life long. Christ never had a moment where he doubted that he was right, and yet he showed himself to be gentle gentle in order to lead others to the knowledge of what is true and right, and ultimately to the knowledge of himself. And so we need to ask ourselves, does our demeanor with others and, and with one another, for that matter, build up or tear down? It's easy enough to be right. It's easy enough if, if you want to find YouTube videos that, that say, Christian destroys atheist. Or conservative destroys liberal, or the other way around. It's easy enough to find those kind of videos, but is that our goal, to destroy those who disagree with us? Uh, of course, it's true, we want to demolish arguments, uh, but unless we do that in a spirit of gentleness, it's never going to win hearts. It only hardens the hearts of those that we're seeking to destroy It's good and it's appropriate to to show how the logical outworking of an idea is is dangerous. In that way, you can destroy an argument. But the goal should never be to shame or to destroy the person bringing the argument, but to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. And so in Christianity, this is what uh, Ravi Zacharias is famous for saying, in Christianity, we believe in an equality of people, and a hierarchy of ideas. An equality of people, a hierarchy of ideas. People are equal in worth, ideas are not. And we need to keep that in mind when we're interacting with those with with different ideas. A reasonable attitude towards others, and especially towards outsiders, shows them that we honor them as people made in the image of God, even if we disagree with them. And so we should be able to disagree while loving all kinds of people, including Muslims, including the Muslims that are moving into our country and even perhaps moving into our community, which might make us uncomfortable. We need to be able to disagree while loving. That's true for Muslims. That's true for atheists. That's true for communists or or socialists. It's true for feminists. It's true for homosexuals. It's true for anyone belonging to any other belief system or lifestyle, not because their their idea is equal or their, their values are equal, but because their identity as people made in the image of God is equal. And so we honor that even if we disagree with their ideas. We Christians ought to show ourselves to be the most respectful and honoring people because we know the truth and we know the reason for our hope. The ability to to show respect is a mark of confidence in one's knowledge of the truth. And so it should never be our goal to embarrass or to destroy, but ultimately to win people to Christ, which begins, first of all, with showing them the love and the patience that Christ himself has shown us. So, the answer to our first question then, why does Paul consider it so important to add this exhortation? The answer is, uh, our gentleness is always going to be an outworking of our joy and a demonstration of our confidence in Christ. It's an outworking of our joy, and it's a demonstration of our confidence in Christ. As I mentioned last week, Paul, or two weeks ago, Paul was... Concerned about the Philippians' joy, not only because rejoicing in the Lord would preserve them in their walk of faith, because it keeps their eyes fixed on Christ, but also because nothing shows the glory and honor of Christ and the value of Christ more than Christians who rejoice in him even in the midst of suffering, uh, they demonstrate to the whole world that they have a greater treasure in Christ than anything they could possibly lose on earth. And gentleness and reasonableness, then, is an outworking and a manifestation of that joy. It carries that same effect, showing the, the value and or the surpassing value of Christ. And so when Christians are able to be insulted, without insulting back, then people get a small taste of the supernatural joy that runs through their veins as Christians. And that ultimately serves to honor the name of Christ. Gentleness, of course, also reflects the character of Christ himself. Again, remember, gentleness and meekness is not the same as as softness, but it's a patient, humble reasonableness towards those who don't know any better. This is, of course, how Christ himself has always been towards us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Peter says that while Christ was on the cross, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God in Christ has shown us the greatest patience and the greatest forbearance and gentleness imaginable. Consider that even even right now, he accepts our worship. He invites us to come here to worship him, despite things that ought to have changed in our lives by now, that we haven't changed yet. Despite motives for being here in church that are far from pure, despite priorities that God knows are not upright despite the fact that God knows how little we think of him during the week he still hears our prayers and he still calls us to worship him here on Sunday and so he gives us his very gentle very reasonable grace and we're called to reflect that grace Towards others, so gentleness then is also a reflection of the character of Christ himself, and in that way it also serves to magnify his glory. When Christians are gentle, people make conclusions about Christ. Uh, there, there's a very sad incongruence in, in a Christian who's saved by God's grace and who continues uh, to be accepted only by God's grace and yet does not find in himself the same compassion and respect for others to be gentle towards them. Uh, we might think of the parable that the Lord Jesus himself told of the unforgiving servant who, was, uh, who owed a thousand lifetimes worth of wages. That's how much it adds up to if you, if you crunch the numbers and compare the currencies. It was a thousand lifetimes worth of wages and yet was forgiven, but then he couldn't find it in himself to forgive his neighbor a few months worth of wages. Our gentleness And our mercy towards others should always be a reflection of the gentleness, patience, and mercy that God has first shown us. Now you'll notice uh, from the title of the sermon that I put in the bulletin that uh, I'm taking all of verse 5 together. And that's not the way that the ESV uh, does it. The ESV puts the punctuation differently so that uh, the second half of the verse, the Lord is at hand, is connected to, to the following verse. And so they put a period in the middle, and then they put a semicolon after the the Lord is at hand. Uh, But the punctuation is not original. We need to know that the punctuation is not original to to Scripture. It's what we, as interpreters, we decide where to put the periods and commas and and semicolons. And so we have to decide where these sentences begin and end. And so we want to ask, as we see these, these phrases standing on their own, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. How do these all tie together? Is there a connection between the first half and the second half of verse 5? You'll notice there's, there's these three imperatives, and we want to know how do they then tie together. And so the question is, is this statement, the Lord is at hand, meant to reinforce the next thing? That Paul has to say or to back up the previous thing that he's just finished saying. Well, I would argue that it's there to give a good reason for your gentleness. In other words, it's there to back up what has just been said. If the Lord is at hand, then we can endure a little bit of insulting and a little bit of injustice. Because we know that the world will see the truth soon enough and we will be vindicated soon enough. If the Lord is at hand, we can be gentle even when we're wronged because we know that God will ultimately vindicate our cause and that vindication is coming soon. And so the knowledge that the Lord is near enables us to be gentle and reasonable towards others. Our inheritance in Christ is already certain. Nothing that anyone can say or do can take that away from us. And so we can afford to bear a little injustice on this earth in the hopes of bringing others to the knowledge of Christ. Now, there's some debate about uh, the word near or at hand, uh, how, we, how we want to understand that phrase. There's, there's basically two ways you can understand it in a temporal sense. In other words, his, his return is coming soon. He's at hand in that respect. And you can also interpret it in in a sort of a a spiritual sense in that he is at hand or near to us at all times. Uh, There's no super clear answer to to that question. Both are true. You can argue it both ways. And and so you don't necessarily need to choose between the two. Uh, You can think of how the Lord Jesus sent his disciples into, into the world and he told them to go and make disciples of all nations and said to them, Behold, I am with you. Until the end of the age. Well, if that's what Paul means when he says the Lord is at hand in that, in that second sense, we can understand how the Philippians needed to hear that. This was a church that, more than any other church in the New Testament, except for Smyrna in, in the book of Revelation, but other than that, more than any church is known for the persecution it endured. So you can, know, you can imagine how the Philippians needed to hear that the Lord is at hand if they were going to endure what they were enduring with gentleness. Because Jesus has promised to be with us, we can entrust ourselves to him. We can put our lives in his hands and in that spirit be compassionate and gracious and long-suffering towards our persecutors here in Canada. We don't experience nearly the same persecution, but we can only imagine what the Philippian church had to endure. And for them to endure that with gentleness is a mark of their confidence that the Lord was near to them and at hand and would not let them go. And so if we know that, we can afford to be mistreated because we know that He will never leave us. So, brothers and sisters, then let's turn to our second question. What does that look like for us? Well, let's take Paul's exhortation to heart. Let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Obviously, that begins here within the church, our reasonableness towards one another. Uh, That might uh, be what Paul was thinking about as well. Just a couple verses before, he had urged the two sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, to come to agreement in the lord the world needs to see that there is gentleness and reasonableness within the church because if there's not that there will certainly never be true gentleness and reasonableness towards others outside of the church everyone should be able to see what patience and long suffering and gentleness we have with one another remember again gentleness is not a mark of softness it's a mark Of wisdom. And that's true especially for the leadership. The leaders among us, including myself, ought to be the the best examples of patience and gentleness and willingness to listen to one another, willingness to bear offenses, showing compassion and understanding towards one another, and especially towards those under their care. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says that uh, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's glory to overlook an offense. It's a good one to, to memorize. Good sense is what makes a person slow to anger. If you're quick to anger, it's a lack of good sense that lies behind that. And it's glory to overlook an offense. That kind of long-suffering does not come naturally to fallen human beings. And our culture certainly does not promote that kind of long-suffering either. And yet, it's a glorious thing to be so sufficiently enriched by the gospel and the knowledge of God and confident of who we are in Christ that we can overlook an offense. It's not even a big deal. No doubt Christ does the same for us. Every, every single day. And so that's certainly then for the leaders, how the leaders should shepherd those under their care, patiently, graciously, and with a spirit of overlooking offenses. Gentleness does not mean never putting your foot down or never standing up for, for what you believe, but it means desiring a person's heart and desiring a person's obedience to Christ instead of taking things personally, and, and becoming defensive or giving vent to frustration. And of course, the charge is for all of us, not just the leaders, just as it was for the Philippian church as well. We need to, to be a church that has a reputation for kindness and for respect towards others and, and, and to have a gentle, reasonable, and confident defense of our faith. Christ is with us. We have nothing to fear from losing an argument and nothing to fear from suffering injustice. It's okay if from time to time we find ourselves without the words or from all appearances losing the arguments. there, there's more to our witness than only our words. The lives that we live and the joy that we have is equally a witness to our faith in Christ. And so we need to learn to make it a point to show the world the same compassion and mercy that Christ every single day shows towards us. And we need to make it a point to be, uh, to be known for, for our love and respect for every visitor that walks through our door and everyone else, of course, with whom we interact during the week. Perhaps as we do that, they will see a glimpse of the joy, the surpassing joy that we have in Christ and the supernatural change that Christ has worked within us as we have come to know his grace in the gospel. Amen.